Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Now it is time for the bigger picture, of course. Joining me is Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, where are we going to begin our discussion today? Well, I think we've got to start with um, the issue of immigration control, um, because there is... I think potentially an almighty showdown coming between the United Kingdom um, and the European Union uh, concerning uh, the rule of law. We uh, obviously see tens of thousands of people coming across the channel each year in the now famous little boats. Um, And the British government has struggled for some time uh, to deal with this issue. Um, And, uh, it, it, it struggled because um, it's very d- difficult to stop people uh, who are so determined to come here um, and through that determination have in effect created a market um, for all the services of, 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 of almost illicit transport across mainly the channel. And um, we're not the only country that is facing challenges there are huge migratory flows um, in different parts of the world uh, but this one has been very different difficult to resolve and we're getting to a point where if the uk government uh want to invoke uh their sovereign power um uh, uh and 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 potentially breach international law um then it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, But I think Rishi Sunak faces a potential clash with the European Union on what they will argue are his unlawful uh, asylum plans. I'm intrigued, Tim. What is the massive attraction, given that the people coming on the small boats have gone through a lot of safe countries in order to, to get to the UK? What is the draw of the UK? I mean, there are many in the UK who are wondering... You know, why we're still here, things seem quite depressing to many of us. So what is the attraction? I think ultimately, I mean, there there are people with lots of different views. There are people on the right who argue a lot of people want to come here because of a generous welfare state, health, education, um, all that. Um, uh, There are people uh, on the left who traditionally take a very internationalist view and who, who want Britain to be a beacon uh of of globalization of internationalization and they put human rights first and they think that if there are people coming uh from uh great poverty or people coming from uh political danger that britain should play its role as a traditional safe haven i i am not ultimately persuaded by the left or the right on this i think it's relatively simple I think we live in an age now 
uh, where we have GPS, where people are more adept and more used to moving around, particularly over great distances. Um, and uh, Britain does stand out as a beacon of stability. This is a place where uh, you can get a fair chance. And if you work hard, um, you can develop your talents and and you can thrive. And I think that that global branding of Britain, and that comes through many sources, through popular culture, through our soft power, monarchy, you know, mother of parliaments, all those elements. Um, I think that the attraction of Britain is, quite frankly, its brand and its standing in the world. And that, I mean, we do... Um, uh let people seek asylum here. Many people have come through um, the more conventional methods without having to go across the channel. Um, some of those who are opposing the small boats say that the vast majority of people coming across are not, as one might think, you know, women and small children, but but males of adult age uh, who are you know, essentially economic migrants who, I suppose, would come lower down the totem pole in seeking asylum. I mean, is that right or not? Do we even have numbers about this? Well, the first thing is that um, there have been many hundreds of thousands of people in recent years who have come to Britain. Um, I mean, there have been years where when in excess of two or three hundred thousand people have come in recent years. Um, I think the number of people coming across the boats are probably accurately estimated to be 30 or 40,000. So what's interesting about the debate is we seem to fixate on the channel and on the boats which probably represents about 10 or 15 percent of um, the inward migratory flow. Um, The reality is that Britain is an island and we've always uh, had people coming here. We're a huge melting pot. That's gone on over many centuries. What we haven't had, perhaps, are the volumes of people that we've seen, dare I say it, particularly um, uh, since the Tony Blair years and since Brexit, the Brexit vote of 2016. Um, but of course, you you have a similar struggle, uh, similar issues, you know, vis-a-vis the United States, huge migratory flows from Latin America um, and from uh, unstable regimes in Central and, and Southern America, where people are moving up to Mexico and indeed trying to get into the United States. Um, these flows change over time. They shift um, and... Uh, it just so happens that I think the United States and Britain um, are key are, are nodes in these migratory flows at the moment. And how do other countries cope? I mean, you say we're heading for an, well, we, Rishi Sunak and the government, are heading for an almighty uh, clash with the EU. But how does the EU cope, which has you know, massive land borders and sea borders? It, it does. And the, the answer is, um, it for all its attempts, I mean, all governments... Uh, whether it's the British government, the American government, or the European Union in Brussels, they all, of course, want to, all these polities want to impose a uniformity of rules. They all want a silver bullet and, and an answer. Um, but actually, the truth is, there's lots of variation. Um, so, you know, down in uh, um, Southeastern Europe, you've seen some uh, robust moves uh, lots of barbed wire going up, lots of fences going up. So lots of physical intervention to stop people. You may remember um, the weaponization of migrants a couple of years ago on the Polish and Belarusian border. 
um, where Polish authorities took particularly strident uh, stand uh, against uh, migratory flows there. Uh, in the Mediterranean, huge numbers of people coming uh, through uh, from sub-Saharan Africa and North, North Africa, trying to go across the Med. That's provided all kinds of challenges, particularly for countries like um, Italy. Um, uh, uh, and of course, you've had Donald Trump in America, who wanted to build uh, his famous wall uh, uh, along the Mexican border. Um, the truth is that these things vary. They vary over time and they vary from state to state. And so migrants and the people who transit them, uh, uh, like all entrepreneurs, are constantly adapting their approaches and their strategies. Um, and, and we've seen that in Britain. Mm. I mean, the little boats phenomenon of recent years is simply the most recent iteration of a tradition of people trying to move around, which mm. goes back uh, through a very, very long period of time. Yes. Wonderful cartoon the other day in one of the papers with officials talking to a, a, an old guy with a walking stick on his doorstep saying, well, we understand you came in a small boat from Dunkirk. Um, exactly. Back in, back in 1940. Yes, yes. And is it worth discussing at all the fuss about uh, Gary Lineker and, and, and what he's been um, tweeting about this? Or well, is that just, just going to go down a rabbit hole? No, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a question there. He's a freelancer. He has a contract with the BBC. Um, does the BBC really have a right to um, to to impose its will on him, uh, you know, in his own private social media space? Um, that, quite frankly, is something between the BBC and him and, and, and the relevant lawyers. I can't judge it. But I think what's really interesting here is that the British government has struggled with this issue. Um, we went through the, 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 the policy, of course, of trying to send people to Rwanda. That didn't work out. Um, and now the government is interest, interested in you know, using legislation and, and its sovereignty um, and in some way defying um, its agreement with the European Union. How that plays out, uh, I think, is very, very unpredictable. But um, uh, a lot of these issues around the world are played out in the courts, and we're entering that phase in, in the UK. Tim, thank you. Time for us to take a brief pause, and then we will return with a different topic. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, what's our next topic, please? The next topic is um, we have um, the spring budget looming. The, the spring budget will be mm. next week. Um, and there are lots of questions about what Chancellor Jeremy Hunt will do. Um, the reality is that the British economy seems to be doing slightly better 
uh, than uh, many of the um, uh, the the analysts have suggested. Um, the economy seems to be relatively stable. Um, growth has not gone down uh, in the way that many people assumed that it would last year. So far, we have avoided uh, a, a recession. Um, so there's a degree of resilience in the economy. Um, uh, the government uh, seems to be doing reasonably well on its tax receipts. It, it did well in January. And the, I think the question is, what will the Chancellor do next week? And could the Labour Party and indeed the SNP be falling potentially into a trap? Uh, there may be early signs in the opinion polls um, that, uh, that, that, that the stability of, of uh, Rishi Sunak's government and it's sort of middle way, um, you know, it, it's relatively high levels of tax. Um, it's giving some pay increases uh, to some people in the public sector, um, but the occasional doffing of the cap to, cap to industry, that maybe this is um, starting to bleed through to the opinion polls and starting to benefit them. So, for example, in recent days, opinion polls have shown that the Conservative Party um, is, is, is once again on level pegging with Labour, uh, when it comes down to the management of the economy. And of course, we still have quite a long way to go to the next election. It's about 18 months away. And if the Tories maintain this steady-as-she-goes approach um, and waits for ever louder calls for there to be tax cuts, um, but closer to the election does indeed uh, provide tax cuts, because, of course, tax cuts have to be earned, um, then it could be that, that they start to go up in the polls. Mm. Already in recent weeks, uh, opinion polls have narrowed slightly. Some polls have the Tories hovering around 30 and Labour at 45. And although that's a big lead for Labour, um, what it actually means is that Tories only have to go up um, um, seven or eight points and then they're level pegging with Labour. And if the Conservatives were to finish this year at around the 33, 34, 35% mark, then... The certainty uh, yeah. around the election would be lost. Uh, the race would narrow. And I think it has yet to be shown uh, that Keir Starmer's Labour Party uh, um, uh, have it within them to, to to really win the next election and win it in a way where they get a real majority and that we don't have a hung parliament. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot to play for at the moment. Labour may well win. The Tories may catch up slightly. But... We, it'll be interesting to see what happens in next week's budget. I don't think it's going to be a particularly bold budget. I think they will clamp down the hatches. I don't think there will be major announcements. I think it will be steady as she goes. Much of the uh, comment about the forthcoming budget has been about corporation tax. A lot of business leaders have been saying they really wanted to go from 19 to 25%. And this is an odd one because we have actually seen evidence that the reduction of corporation tax has actually produced an increase in revenue to the treasury but it doesn't appear to be that the treasury ever acknowledges this 
Um, and so clearly, you know, we're somewhere on the Laffer curve. And there's the concern that if it goes back up, it, far from producing more revenue, it may actually produce less. We've got quite a few businesses have already said that they're not likely to be investing in Britain if it goes up. We've had um, oh, uh, people like um, AstraZeneca, didn't they? They decided they were going to have that site, their new plant in, in Ireland instead of in the UK. And obviously, Ireland reducing its corporation tax to be just about the most competitive Western country there is, has seen a massive boom for for that country. So it seems an odd one, because I understand tax is going up if it produces more revenue, but what is the point of increasing tax if actually you think it's going to reduce revenue? I agree, and I, I, I think I'm right in saying that corporation tax in Ireland uh, can be as low as 12 or 13%. You know, yeah. It is super duper yes. competitive. Having said that, um, you know, Ireland, uh, like... Uh, uh, mainland Britain, Ireland is an island. Uh, it is way to the west of Europe. And quite frankly, you have to have that uh, sort of tax if you're going to have a fighting chance to attract people uh, over there um, in what is ultimately, yes, a very much European country, but 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 somewhat out there in the Atlantic. So these things are not just um, Laffer curve effects, um, you know, in the round or simply, those effects themselves are partly governed also by things like geopolitics, location, all that, and the logistical implications of that. Now, you're right. One of the odd things about the Treasury in London is that they tend to have fairly clunky and linear models um, whereby they, they, you know, they advise on tax. What they don't have, and Alistair Heath in The Telegraph has talked a lot about this over the years, is fluid and and, and particularly dynamic modelling. Because, of course, that dynamic modelling would take account of 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 the Laffer curve effects and give us a far more nuanced and subtle approach to tax. Um, So, for example, um, I I think it's the case that with the highest rate of tax, or the higher rate of tax, which is sort of 45%, there was that argument, you know, why why not reduce it to 40% with free marketeers saying, Mm. yes, if you were to reduce it to that, you'd bring more money in. And then the opponent saying, no, that's not right. You know, you, you know, um, people who earn so much money should be paying, you know, moral grounds almost should be paying more and they want it back up to 45. Often humans rhetorically are attracted to round numbers, 40, 45, <laughs> yes. 50. It's simple rhetoric, you know, talk to the ancient Greeks about this. They knew what they were talking about. I think the truth is that if you were going to have a more sophisticated Laffer curve approach, uh, and here's to really upset those in the business of rhetoric and speeches, um, probably the higher rate of tax should be around 42, maybe 43%. But the problem is this is politics and 43% is a lot less sexy um, and and doesn't harbour the sort of excitement that a 40 or a 45 gets. Similarly, um, yes, I think you're right. We may well indeed, you know, we may put corporation tax up to um 25 percent from the current 19 percent um uh and maybe we'll got more money in maybe we won't but one of the problems with all these numbers is when they're played by treasuries and they're played by their political masters it's it they're often like military operations um it's not just the the reality and the implications of the numbers in and of themselves it's often the killing grounds that they set up so if you have, for example, an opposition that has said they're quite happy with a higher rate of corporation tax, um, but that the Conservatives 
don't at the end of the day invoke it, then Labour are left high and dry as favouring higher taxes, and then the Conservatives suddenly, you know, they're 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 in competition with our friends in Ireland. The point is that when these things are politicised, they're not just about the numbers, but they become they become the the mechanism through which politicians try to game economics and game electorates, and they try and game each other, and that's when it becomes so difficult. So even if the Conservatives were to carry on with the higher rate of corporation tax, don't underestimate the possibility that six months later or a year later, if, for example, the Labour Party say they're going to keep, they're going to maintain that higher rate, Mm. that the Conservatives then reverse ferret and say, oh, no, we're going to reduce it, but this time we're going to reduce it to 19, and if we win the next election, we're then going to reduce it to 18. That's when the politics comes in. So it's pretty murky. Okay, Tim, thank you. Would you want to cover another topic as well? So why don't we dive straight into that as our our final um, today? Yeah, so uh, it it is interesting that the Republican Party uh, in in Congress are increasingly divided, it seems, uh, uh, when it comes to the subject of US support, military support for the Ukraine. And it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, to see some leading Republicans, uh, including Trump, but there are others, basically argue that they've done enough, they spent enough money on Ukraine, and that the United States should row back on its support uh, for, 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 for their freedom and for their democracy. Uh, and this reminds me that there is a long tradition of isolationism in the United States of America. Britain went to great efforts in the First World War to try and inveigle the United States into the First World War. Um, uh, We were very aware, I think, in the latter parts of 1914 and 15, of the importance of bringing America with its military and industrial right into that war. But quite frankly, uh, it took us uh, until 1917 to bring us into the war. And I say that advisedly, because the British uh, went out of their way through all manner of diplomacy and public affairs and some skullduggery to try and uh, encourage American politicians, but also voters, to engage in that war. In the Second World War, in May 1940, uh, the British set up a a notorious organisation called British Security Coordination in the Rockefeller Center in New York. Mm. Um, And BSC was tasked um, with trying to reverse uh, US opinion polls. Um, In the late 1930s, there was a huge surge in isolationism in America. Uh, The vast majority, upwards of 80% of Americans, swore that they would never get involved in another European war. Um, so British Security Coordination, which was headquartered in New York, um, uh, uh, used all kinds of outreach through uh, American radio programs, through wire services, and through the national press to uh, uh, impact US public opinion and try and reverse that number. And in in a very brief period, in, in about a year, um, British Security Coordination, which possibly employed a network of more than 3,000 operatives in America, 
started, and they did it with the blessing well, the of the likes people. of Noel Coward and, and, and others, apparently on the books, weren't they? Yeah. Roald Dahl, all kinds of people were involved, yeah. and they had a huge impact. And by the time the Japanese uh, struck at Pearl Harbor in 1941, uh, US public opinion was moving very much in, in, in an interventionist direction. Yeah. Uh, Br- British security coordination had sort of warmed them up, and and then the Japanese did what they did, and suddenly Roosevelt felt he had the elbow room, he had the support in Congress, and also in the electoral sphere of politics to engage. Um, here we are again with a, a war in Europe, um, the rising tide of isolationism uh, in Washington. Um, it seems to me that this is very, very dangerous. Yeah. Europe is at grave risk when uh, America uh, decouples itself. Well, yes, uh, because really, what is what is NATO without American um, backing? Exactly, and I, you know, I think it, you know, for for the Republican Party, which during the Cold War primed its prided itself on uh, on the belief in deterrence, on uh, on um, investing in the US military and in supporting NATO, for the Republican Party to be splintering in the way it is, and for it to be, um, in some parts, in some places, sort of going down the rabbit hole it's going, uh, it's um, it's not only shocking to see, um, but it, it is, I think, dangerous. So I think that the Europeans have to uh, really call that wing of the Republican Party out at the moment. And together, the democracy... You know, have to uh, make sure um, that our values and our principles are defended um, in, we, in Europe. Perhaps we'll have to set up another of those groups. I'm trying to think, um, you know, who we can send send out there. Yes, um, I think you would be a rather good candidate. Well, I was thinking more people like oh, I'm trying to think now. Eddie Izzard, uh, John Cle. I can't. I can't think who would be able to convince the Americans. You know what? I, I think. That, I, I think if 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 the Pythons, the remaining Pythons, were at the vanguard. Yes. With, with as he is, I mean, we've got all the talent there. We could send a whole brigade of comedians, yes, uh, and intellectuals. You know, we could have our philosophers from Cambridge and Oxford. I'm sure that we could have a fair old. <laughs> but the, the, the important point stands that whether it's through art or literature or philosophy or any of these subjects, um, really, I think that again, uh, this isolationist tendency mm. in politics uh, is very, very risky, very dangerous, and it has to be faced down. Tim, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Professor Tim Evans, who is Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, I hope, will be back with me again in a fortnight's time to discuss the bigger picture on Share Radio. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.